We are going to be in Mark chapter 9 today. So like I said, we started this series last week, halfway through the Gospel of Mark, because Mark is kind of set up in, uh, uh, in two sections. Section A is basically Jesus shows up on the scene after his baptism. Everybody's trying to figure out who he is. In fact, he goes around, he heals, he teaches, he causes controversy time and again, and all these in the crowds, his own disciples go, who is this? Who is he? What, what? Who is this who forgives sins? Who is this who causes the wind and waves? And they even obey him. Who is this who casts out demons? And they don't figure it. And then in chapter 8, as we looked at last week, everything kind of turns when Jesus takes his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi, as far north as you can go, as far away from Jerusalem as you can be, to talk about the kingdom. And he says, who am I? And, G and Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You're the anointed one. You are the king. And then Jesus, the second half of this gospel, is defining what his kingdom looks like, who he is as king, how his kingdom comes and how he will establish his kingdom. And it turns out to be upside down, inside out, backwards, from every other organization, every other institution, every other scheme anybody has ever come up. And today, we're looking at the upside down nature of greatness. So we're going to be reading in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 37. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And when they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. All right. So today we're going to learn from this three different points. Okay. What true greatness is, what it looks like and how to get it. Okay. So um, this is the question. And I think it has cultural relevance today. I think it was Stephen Covey who said about success, and I think you could say that about greatness. What happens if you are climbing that ladder of success and you find out when you get to the top that it's leaning against the wrong wall? <laughs> I think there are a lot of people who have looked for greatness in this world, and they finally get it, and they realize it's not what they thought it was, and maybe I was chasing the wrong thing all along. The disciples are asking that question today. So we're going to look at what true greatness is. They were talking and they knew Jesus had been talking about a kingdom, right? The kingdom of God. They're used to that. And they know that every organization, every kingdom has kind of a hierarchy, an org chart, if you will. Um, 
if you work anywhere of any size, you know there's kind of an org chart. If you're in a family, you probably have a pecking order among the kids. Who was at the bottom of the pecking order in their family? Anybody? Ah, oh, <laughs> yeah. I was the middle kid. And um, the middle kid got picked on in my family from the bottom and the top. But we are the best adjusted in society, by the way. We know how to work that. But I was the middle kid. And um, the older looked out for the younger, and the younger uh, played the victim. <laughs> yeah. Now, my brother, if he's watching out in California, he's probably saying, no, I wasn't. Yeah, I know. But um, every organization has a pecking order. Everybody has an org chart. And you know somebody's on top, somebody's in the middle, somebody's on the bottom. And the disciples were saying, so who's going to be on top in the kingdom? And they weren't, if you noticed in the text in Mark 9, it wasn't just a hypothetical situation. They were actually arguing about it. They were fighting over who was going to be on top. They were wondering who's in the middle. Which one of us is the greatest? You, you kind of know what those kind of discussions are like. Have you ever been around a group that's kind of talking that way? Now, this is very telling. Because basically, the disciples are showing what greatness looks like in the world. It's always a competition. Do you realize that? It's always a competition. You're always trying to achieve it. It's something that you have to gain. It's something you fight for. It's something you fight over. It's something you push other people out of the way. I can only be great if other people are not. <laughs> You're in competition for it. And if they're arguing on the outside, I think what's going on on the inside is pretty telling as well. Because on the inside, when you see someone who has to and who does talk about how great they are, how wonderful they are, how smart they are, how together they are, how much they know, how good they are, what an expert they are. Have you ever heard people talk like that? You know what's going on on the inside is that they are a mess, and they are insecure, and they are totally wrapped up in themselves, and they are, nothing, they are afraid they aren't great. Now, there's a classic case in the Bible about this. It occurs, actually, in the book of Daniel. And there is a man, King Nebuchadnezzar. He is, at that point in time, in the book of Daniel, you can read about this, he is on top of the world. He has conquered the known world from Babylon, all the nations. There is no king that could defy him. There is no prince. There is no one who could deny him. Everyone around him was lesser than he, and yet King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and for him it was a nightmare. Because in the dream, he dreamt about this giant tree, taller than all the trees in the world. And then everything was living under its branches. And then he heard a voice from heaven saying, chop it down so that it's only a stump. And it troubled him so much because he knew that dream was about him. So here we have the king that no one could define, no one is greater than, no one is higher than, and he is still troubled because he was wondering, so who's going to chop me down? When am I going to lose my... He was still insecure on the inside. 
When you achieve greatness in the world's ways, you're always going to have to look over your shoulder. You're always going to have to wonder, who's going to chop me down? When is it going to happen? You're always filled with self-doubt and insecurity. Even Nebuchadnezzar had that. So if you want to achieve greatness in this world and you want to do it the way the world is doing it, you will never get it where it's secure. Jesus says it's not greatness anyways. That's not how his kingdom is set up. He responds to the disciples with the most counterintuitive, backward, inside out, paradoxical statement ever. He says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. No one else has ever talked that way. Don't look to the top of the organization chart for greatness, Jesus says. You got to look at the bottom. Real greatness is about how one serves, how one cares, how one loves, how one defers, how one gives credit to others. Greatness is not a competition in the kingdom. It's not even a contest. It's about being a servant through and through. That's how Jesus is defining greatness to the utter shock of his disciples. Now, that's what it is. Now, what does it look like? And so Jesus gives them an object lesson. He pulls into the midst of them a little child. And he says, here, this is what greatness looks like. Isn't that fascinating? Now, what's funny about this word, paideon, which is the Greek word that is used here for a child, it's not a teenager, and it's not even a toddler. The word paideon means a kid who's a little older than an infant, but who can't stand on his own two feet yet. He pulls a child who is totally helpless and totally without any resources himself and says, here, you want to see what greatness looks like? This is it. It's like a little kid who's topsy-turvy and can't stand on his own two feet, who's needy and open and vulnerable, doesn't even understand social status or pyramid schemes, just as a kid. Now, we look at children today, and in our society, and it's possibly because of uh, the Christian background to Western civilization as a result of things like Jesus and this statement, and we look at childhood, and we think it's wonderful, and we look at children, and we think they're so innocent and cute and wonderful and great, until we have one. <laughs> oh, yeah. But we still look at childhood as something valid and wonderful. That was not the case in first century when Jesus lived. Whether it was in the Jewish culture or the Greco-Roman culture, children were not seen the way we often see children today. Arthur Murphy, in his dissertation, I was reading some of it this week, he studied the culture of the first century of Judaism and um, of the Greco-Roman society. And what he said is, yes, children were sometimes seen as wonderful, but this is what he says. However, there's little evidence in Jewish sources of this period that children were valued as children, okay? Jewish boys were functionally significant as heirs that will inherit the land, their family's social status. And Jewish girls were functionally significant for their future role as mothers and help, and their help to maintain the family's covenant with God. Both were prized as caretakers of elderly parents. So children weren't like, oh, it's wonderful to be a child. It's 
This is what child, child, you know, this is what life is all about. It's like someday they'll be something. They're only significant in what they will become someday. But Jesus isn't saying that. He's saying this is what the kingdom is like. This child in your midst. Keith White points out that it's fascinating. There are a lot of marginal and uh, people that came to Jesus in one form or another. You can talk about lepers and how women were treated in that society and how they were welcomed by Jesus and he brought them in and sinners and publicans and tax collectors and people who are on the margins of society. But only does Jesus take a child, not one of these other individuals, and places him in the center and says, this is what the kingdom is about. Arthur James Murphy then writes, suddenly the interpreter recognizes that the synaptic authors have done nothing short of bringing children out of the shadows of social marginality in the real world and situate them in a place of distinction in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, this is what greatness looks like. You're serving the least. You're serving a child. You're being like a child yourself. And you're serving and welcoming no matter what, without social distinction, the poor, the weak, whoever it happens to be, you have nothing on God, and yet God gives you everything. That's what it means to be in the kingdom. Jesus is saying here, if, if you welcome me into your life, then what you're really doing as well is you're looking around at anyone else and you're going to welcome them. You're not going to look at them to what's to your advantage. You're not going to look at them to what they have or don't have. You just look at them as someone God loves and God needs. And you're willing to be a part of their life. And we need this right now in our society. Because when we look at other people, our society right now is seeing differences as things to use against each other. Right now, our society is so divided and so polarized and so many issues. Instead of seeing differences as just differences, we're taking advantage of others, lame, uh, blaming and la labeling and pushing away, unlike these two, that just welcome and embrace and love. And Jesus says, you want to be great in the kingdom? This is how you are. This is who you are. This is who we are at heart. And like uh, my father-in-law wisely said years before he passed away, he said, John, adults are just ch children with wrinkles. <laughs> and some of us a lot less hair. But that's who we are. And that's what we are supposed to be. You know, it's only when we see our spot in the world, whatever it happens to be, as a gift from God, as something that we just receive like a little child receiving affection, etc., then we can look at others the same way. And then we can have a society that actually kind of gets along, even with differences. It was interesting. Uh, Andrew De Del Banco in 2012 wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times about higher education and how in some elite schools in the nation, what used to be higher education being used to serve community in the world has turned into kind of an entitlement attitude of people who go and smugness has taken over. And what sadly is in the highest institutions in our land, like Princeton, Yale, and Harvard, all founded, by the way, as Christian 
universities at the time that they were founded, and yet they have wandered from that basic understanding. And so Andrew Del Banco, who is not a Christian himself, he's, he's a uh, critic of literature, I think, and um, a writer himself. This is what he said. He said, in my experience, a great many students at top colleges are wonderful young people whose idealism matches their intelligence, yet the charge that elite college culture encourages smugness and self-satisfaction contains a germ of truth. And then he writes, our oldest and most prestigious colleges are losing touch with the spirit in which they were founded. To the stringent Protestants who founded Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, the mark of salvation was not high self-esteem, but humbling awareness of one's lowliness in the eyes of God. With such awareness came the recognition that those whom God favors are granted grace, not for any worthiness of their own, but by God's unmerited mercy as a gift to be converted into working and living on behalf of others. That lesson should always be a part of the curriculum. Uh, not just at Yale, Harvard, and Princeton. It needs to be part of the curriculum of every Christian church in everybody's life. Because when it is, then we understand whatever position you're in in society, whether you're on, the world looks at you that you're on top, in the middle, or on the bottom, you use your position for the sake of others, not for yourself. And you understand the position that you're given, it's all a given. That greatness is not something you achieve or earn or something that you can be entitled to. But greatness is a gift from God who is focused on you and given his life for you. And greatness is something then you can display in how you serve the least, the lonely, and the lost, and the least likely, and the last, rather than trying to find prominence in our society. We need to be a place here at Thrive, which I'm glad I have seen signs of it, but I also see in my life still signs of me trying to play games the way the world does, of trying to show prominence and prestige and all that stuff. But we need to be a place where that little scene of two kids hugging each other just because, wow, my friend, that that happens on a regular, don't hug today, <laughs> do this, but that that happens on a regular basis. Because that's what the Christian church is supposed to be, period. Simple, right? So how do we get it? How do we get this? Now, in Matthew, Matthew, and there are three Gospels, and my students at FGCU who are taking the New Testament class, right, Miranda? You know this. They're called synoptics. There are three that basically look the same that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have identical words, et cetera, and stories. And this one, actually, the text I have in Mark, also occurs in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. Different place, but the same idea. And in Matthew, there's a few differences. But Matthew says it this way. When Jesus talks about greatness, he also says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So when he took the child in the midst, he said, they're a sign of humility. Humility. The child is not looking down on itself. The child is just a child. The child is looking outside of himself to others for everything he needs. Notice the word, unless you turn. 
Here's what's fascinating I find in the Christian church. Often we look at children and we tell them they have to become like adults before they can enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, no, adults have to become like the kids again to enter the kingdom of God. You know, people naturally approach God this way, especially adults. We go to God and go like, oh, God, I really need you right now. You know, I know I'm not perfect. I've kind of blown it a few times, but I've tried. And we start listing our resume as if it's a curriculum vitae to God and saying, here we go. These are the things I've tried to accomplish in my life. Hire me, right? I've tried all these things. I've done all this. I've, I've, I've attempted that. I know I don't really, but at least, God, I'm not like. And then, you know, you can kind of list all the other applicants for the job. And you think you're a much better. But we come to God to negotiate. That's not coming to God at all. That is not coming to God at all. A child comes to his parent. A child comes to her parent, not to negotiate, but to ask. Well, I hope. I, the problem is, kids, I know, I know some kids here and some parents here, and my kids too, they learn too much from us how to negotiate, and they should just be asking. That's why maybe Jesus took a toddler, not even a toddler, who had nothing, and placed that child in front of his disciples. This kid can't even negotiate. This kid can only ask. This kid has only needs. This is the kingdom of God. Unless you turn, Jesus said. What's fascinating about that word is it really does, can mean convert to turn away and turn around. And I think we need to turn away from the definition of greatness in this world. To say, I'm not going to play that game anymore, God. Not with you. I can't. I have nothing. I'm empty. There is no resume I can turn to. Anything I would show you in my life is riddled with selfishness, is riddled with egotism. Even the good things that I've done, God, if I try to give you my resume, you could say, wait a minute, didn't you do that for? And you could show my motivation was totally wrong. I'm Throw away the resume. Here I am. I have nothing on you, just like a child. That's what it means to enter the kingdom of God, Jesus says. To turn away from that. To turn away from the usual way of trying to negotiate. You're never going to have any idea of greatness until you let go of the world's and turn away from the world's understanding of greatness. And then secondly, you need to turn away. And then secondly, you need to turn around. You need to see who really is great. This was fascinating. Think about it. Here Jesus is. He's talking about the kingdom. Right before, at the beginning of this passage, he is showing what greatness is because he says, I'm going to Jerusalem where I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of men, and I am going to be killed and on the third day rise again. And the disciples just were clueless about this and moved on to a different topic. Who's greatest in the kingdom? 
who's greatest in the kingdom is the one who took the last place, the lowest place, the bottom place. William Lane, in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, when he talks about this passage and how Jesus phrases it, says, Jesus will be delivered into the hands of men by God himself. And what takes place on the level of historical occurrence has ultimate significance because Jesus is saying it's not that it's a tragedy that this is happening, but God has, my Father has called me to lay down my life for you. And that's what he does. He took the last place. He took the lowest place. He became the least. Philippians chapter 2 kind of says it this way. Jesus emptied himself. You talk about he took away and threw away all of his own resume. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You'll never be in last place because Jesus is there. And Jesus took that so that he could give you his place, his rightful place in the kingdom. When you start seeing what Jesus did for you, you'll do exactly what Philippians says right after this, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is glory to the glory of God the Father. When you see what Jesus did for you, you've turned around and you are not focused on yourself anymore, but you go like, wow, what a savior we have. What does this all mean for Thrive? Okay, I've kind of shared a little about this, but um, it means that we, um, we have 9.2 acres over on Ben Hill Griffin Drive that we have access to. We still, um, um, our church body bought it 20 years ago and is waiting for us to be ready to move. And this year we're exploring that. We're exploring to see how we might be able to build a first unit of some type and what that would cost and how that would happen. And I'll tell you, we need to consider what it means though here. We're not going to build a wow, big, honkin', woo, nice place that looks spectacular in the world's eyes. And look, look at that church is really great because look at the building they've got and look at what they're, that's not greatness. We don't want to attract people to that kind of greatness. Whatever we build, we want to build something that's totally serviceable and usable and is open and welcoming to anyone. And that, uh, <laughs> that we become a servant of all in the community. So however we do that, whatever that looks like, I'm not quite sure, but we need to keep that in mind. In the coming weeks, we'll talk more about this upside down nature. I think Thrive, we're kind of unique that way maybe. We're not trying to be um, a cathedral. We're not trying to be um, the top of the heap. We're trying to serve and to give and to make a difference in the lives of people who really need it. And however that works, whoever that happens to be. So even now, right here, we can and we have been and we will continue to serve as children to the least, the likely, uh, the least, the last, the lost, 
the least likely. And uh, I pray through whatever comes our way that that's what God is doing in our lives. Let's pray together right now. Lord God, thank you for this day, for the work that you're doing in our hearts and lives. Jesus, you've served us in such a way that the king would be the last, the least, that you would lose all for us. We're just shocked at that, Lord. Have that penetrate us and melt our hearts and turn us away from the ways of this world and how the world looks at greatness. May our boast be in you and no one else. Not because you're so powerful, but because you are so sacrificial and so loving and so merciful and so gracious, Lord. May your grace just permeate everything we do here at Thrive. We pray that you would prepare our hearts now, Lord, as we are going to receive the Lord's Supper in a few minutes, that we are open to what you have for us, that we take you as you give your very body and blood to us, Lord, that everyone who comes believes and trusts in you, and we receive all that you have for us. So bless our time, Lord, now, as we, like children, open our hands and our lives to you and receive your goodness and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.